gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, the Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Hendon Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing Friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's, it's... Superman! 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 This looks like a job for Superman! Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to episode 44 of Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this week I am bringing you a pairing of two titanic heroes, Superman the Man of Steel and Captain Marvel Earth's Mightiest Mortal. Now, I first discovered the world of Shazam in the early 80s when NBC played the Shazam cartoon on Saturday mornings. It hooked me, I mean, it really just had me all in. The power of Superman given to a little boy. A little boy, that could be me. It was Harry Potter before Harry Potter, before Tim Hunter in the Books of Magic, even. And it's a boy minding his own business, and then he's given superpowers. And how could anyone not love the Captain Marvel costume, the stark red with a sharp cape that had the high collar and that awesome lightning bolt on his chest? It stands out, and whenever it's on the page, you can't help but stare at it. Now, for years, Captain Marvel really ran neck and neck with Superman to be my number one character which is really hard for a hardcore Superman fan to admit. But whenever Superpowers came out in the mid-80s, I defaulted to Captain Marvel. That was my favorite figure until he met a tragic end at the mechanisms of a recliner. So let's talk Captain Marvel here. I'm going to really start with an overview of the good Captain's history. And this is going to be a somewhat concise history just for our time here. In the history of Captain Marvel, the origins of what we're covering begin with a man named Wilford H. Fawcett. And if you were to go to Breezy Point, Minnesota, you would actually find his house as a historical landmark, more for the house's construction than for what Fawcett himself did. Fawcett was an army captain in World War I, worked for the military publication Stars and Stripes, and he got the idea to start his own publication, Captain Billy's Whiz Bang. 
And this publication had... Well, it was more of a book, but it was filled with body adult jokes, which is odd because it does mirror Superman's origin a bit, since DC was founded as an offshoot for uh, pornographic material. And, well, publishers of pornographic material. Let me clarify, Superman's origins are not technically in porn, the publishers are. DC Comics is. Now, with this adult publication a success... Fawcett Publications expanded into a ton of magazines ranging from detective-based material to home mechanics. And as a family-owned and operated business, Fawcett bloomed, and shortly after Wilfred Fawcett's death, the company expanded to the new and lucrative field of comic books. Captain Billy's son put out the demand, give me a character like Superman with an alter ego that is a 10-year-old boy. Enter Bill Parker who was a writer who answered the call with a concept called Captain Thunder, who would be the culmination of six young kids imbued with the powers of mythological characters who could form a hero from their power. It was suggested that rather than have multiple characters with a bit of their power, why not have one who can transform into the single hero? And Parker teamed with artist Charles Clarence Beck, better known as C.C. Beck, and together they crafted Captain Thunder's adventure, which was to debut in Flash Comics number one, which was printed up as an ash can for copyright purposes, but that was where the problems began, because Fawcett couldn't copyright the name Captain Thunder, nor could they use the comic title Flash Comics, because some other guy in a red costume with a yellow lightning bolt insignia had that book nailed down. So Captain Thunder was changed to Captain Marvelous, and then just to Captain Marvel, and he made his appearance instead in Wiz Comics number two, cover dated February 1940. And an important note, or bookmark as it were, Wiz Comics number 2 also featured the first appearances of Ibis the Invincible and Spy Smasher, both of whom will be relevant to what we're covering a little bit later. Well, one of which, pardon me. Now, to be fair, I've never heard Captain Marvel described as the overnight success that Superman was. But he definitely didn't take too long to hit stride because he began spreading to other Fawcett books quickly. Captain Marvel gained a lot of traction, enough that DC Comics noticed and began a series of lawsuits to shut him down, claiming he was too similar to Superman. And Cap began to create a franchise for himself, including a youthful spin-off character named Captain Marvel Jr., who debuted in Wiz Comics number 25 in 1941, which is roughly four years before Superboy would debut in More Fun Comics 101. And a year after Captain Marvel Jr.'s debut, Mary Marvel would debut in Captain Marvel Adventures number 18, and become the first female derivative of a superhero, predating Batwoman and Supergirl by over a decade. And the Marvel family took over several titles and easily outsold even the Man of Steel, further strengthening DC's resolve to shut Fawcett down. And the characters would appear in multiple titles, like Captain Marvel Adventures, Captain Marvel Jr., The Marvel Family, Master Comics, Wiz Comics, WoW Comics, and even a funny animal spinoff, Hoppy the Marvel Bunny. Captain Marvel also has the unique distinction of being the first superhero on the silver screen, appearing in a 12-part movie serial in 1941 entitled The Adventures of Captain Marvel, months before Superman would debut in animated form with the Max Fleischer cartoons. So, the Captain was quite a trailblazer, and DC Comics was still trying to put the kibosh on the books, and eventually they succeeded, shutting Fawcett City's gates for good with the Marvel Family number 89 in January 1954. Now, before moving on, I want to say it's very easy to make DC out to be a villain in the story, and it's been done time and time again, but that's not really the case. For some context, uh, this was the beginning of the Golden Age 
and superheroes. So DC had really brought the concept to the public, and it isn't really that far-fetched to think that they kind of had a market cornered at that point. And this is pre-Marvel Comics, after all. And there wasn't a big two before Fawcett. And even the cover of Wiz Comics number two showed Captain Marvel throwing a car, not unlike Action Comics number one. And to boot, the edict that brought Captain Marvel to fruition was to make a hero like Superman, so not, not entirely off-base, but... Captain Marvel really was different from Superman in a lot of ways. The obvious, he was a kid in his alter ego. Something Spider-Man is credited with is the fact that under that mask, he could be anyone, even a 10-year-old boy. That made a big distinction for Cap, and was really likely part of his drawing power, to be honest. Uh, Number two, his powers were granted later in life. Superman arrived on Earth with superpowers. He grew up honing them just like you or I learned to walk. But Billy grew up normal and was given his powers by the wizard Shazam. That makes the origins different on top of the fact that three, he was given his powers by magic from mythological heroes. He is magic-based, human, and that makes his background entirely different. But many probably saw the red suit and the super strength and the flight and made that obvious knee-jerk reaction comparing Superman and Captain Marvel, which will continue. He's always been compared to Superman. And, you know, after that, Captain Marvel and the whole Marvel family faded out of the public eye in 1954. Like many heroes would, actually, because Frederick Wortham and his witch hunt followed. But I'm a firm believer that you can't keep a good hero down, which brings us to the second stage of Captain Marvel, the revival. In 1973, DC Comics, the company that effectively put Fawcett out of business, decided to lease the rights to publish the character. And yes, that is a load of irony, and it it didn't escape anyone. But the series repositioned Captain Marvel and his family into the 70s, after being in suspended animation for 20 years. Trick was, the comic had to be retitled Shazam, thanks to Marvel Comics copywriting the name Captain Marvel, and it lasted 35 issues before the cast was placed into backup features in World's Finest Comics. With the debut of Shazam, DC made a big promotional push behind the series, and it dropped on December 14th of 1972, and I want to do something different. I want to take a look at that issue as our first stop this week. Um, it had two regular stories and some back matter, but what I want to do, the unique part, is look at that first story that retells Captain Marvel's origin from Wiz Comics number 2, and along with that, I want to do a comparison of the original premiere in Wiz Comics number 2. So Shazam, as I mentioned, he had a cover date of February... 1973, and the cover itself for the 73 version was Superman pulling a curtain back on Billy Batson as he shouts the magic word and becomes Captain Marvel, the world's mightiest mortal. Wiz Comics number two, as I mentioned, had a cover date of February 1940, so they are 33 years apart. Now, the cover of Wiz is an iconic shot of Captain Marvel throwing a car to the left of the image, and only the original includes the words gangway for Captain Marvel as reprints were forced to remove the name from the cover. The first story from Shazam number 1 was written by Denny O'Neill with art by C.C. Beck, and it was entitled In the Beginning. And it has a framing sequence, which is around the origin, to fit it into the modern context. But the origin sequences are fairly intact, save for about three deviations, which is what I'm going to point out. In the 73 version, Otto Bender walks down a city street and is surprised to see Billy Batson, who has been missing for 20 years. 
Bender asks how Billy can be the same age after all this time, to which Billy replies that it's a long story and he wouldn't believe it. After Bender leaves, Billy flashes back to a rainy night long ago, to a night that we also see in the first Captain Marvel story, introducing Captain Marvel from Wiz Comics number 2. This was actually drawn by C.C. Beck as well, but written by Bill Parker, and this is where the two stories kind of merge. On this night, Billy was selling newspapers, when a mysterious, shadowy stranger in a broad-brimmed hat beckoned Billy into the tunnels. As they descended deeper into the tunnels, Billy explained that he was homeless, and he lived in the subways where he can keep warm. At the subway tracks, a subway car appeared, covered in symbols, and the stranger urged Billy onto the train. And the train took Billy to a long cavern lit by torchlight where his guide disappeared, and Billy pressed forward down the cavern, which was lined with statues depicting the seven deadly enemies to man. Pride, envy, greed, hatred, selfishness, laziness, and injustice. And the cavern came to an end at the large stone chair of a very old-looking gentleman in a robe with long silver hair and equally long and silver beard. Above the old man hung a huge stone block held in place by literally a string and a string that was fraying to boot. The man introduced himself as the ancient Egyptian wizard Shazam and explained to Billy that after 5,000 years of fighting evil, or 3,000 in the original Wiz comics, his time is up and Billy would be his successor. The wizard ordered Billy to say his name aloud, and then the, when the boy called out, Shazam! Thunderclap sounded, and a bolt of lightning struck. And with that, young Billy Batson was transformed into a full-grown man in that red suit that I mentioned with the white cape and the insignia of a lightning bolt on his chest. The boy became the world's mightiest mortal. Continuing in the Shazam version, Billy doesn't get the chance to soak in this change because the thread holding the block above the wizard snaps, bringing it down on the old man and smashing him in his stone chair. Now, here's that deviation point. In the original Wiz Comics version of the story, Shazam actually speaks a bit before and uses a device called the Historama that he uses to view and display the events from the outside world. And with the Historama, Shazam displays events from Billy's life, showing us that Billy is an orphan who was left in the care of his wicked uncle who drove Billy out of the house to get his hands on Billy's inheritance. And this scene seems cut down to fit into the six pages provided for this story in the Shazam version, but the 73 origin includes expositional scene not in the original. Because in the original, after bestowing the power of Captain Marvel to, onto Billy, Captain Marvel changes back, and the ensuing lightning makes the stone drop, which is where the origin part of the original story ends. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but right now, back to the Denny O'Neill version, where the wizard Shazam reappears in ghost form and tells the newly minted Captain Marvel that should he ever need the wizard, he must only light a brazier or a torch, and it will summon the wizard's ghost. And Shazam officially dubs Billy Captain Marvel and explains that his powers come from six mighty heroes from legend, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. And then Captain Marvel is sent forth to fight evil, all evil. Now back to the framing sequence in the then present of 1973, Billy thinks that he has made good on his promise to fight evil, but the world's wickedest scientist found a way to exile Captain Marvel but that exile is over, and now Billy Batson is going to find the man responsible. 
And the second story of Shazam number one shows us that Dr. Savannah, Captain Marvel's chief nemesis, placed the Marvel family in their supporting cast, all of them, in suspended animation until they were freed 20 years later, which I mentioned earlier. And I'm going to talk about this story and then we'll come back to the original Wiz Comics version. And this opens with a gorgeous C.C. Beck frontispiece of Captain Marvel flying with a lightning bolt striking behind him. It's just a great pinup piece. And I'm stricken by the color in these stories. Specifically the color of red, Captain Marvel and Billy's primary color. It's easy to dismiss Captain Marvel's costume as a bit of an inverted version of Superman's. Especially once the military flap style he originally had in Wiz Comics is removed because it gives the suit more of a spandex look. But the red is a very pure red and it stands on its own and that, complemented by the yellow in the belt, the boots, the cuffs and insignia, make the look just pop. While the flap on the chest adds a unique look, it isn't needed. And it's important to note that the core design came from a time when the superhero template was just being constructed, because Wiz Comics number two was only two years after Superman debuted and a year after Batman premiered. But moving into the story proper with a very meta meeting of Billy Batson and Otto Bender, a main part of why I wanted to include this story in my coverage this week. Bender was responsible for writing over half the Marvel family's adventures when Bill Parker was drafted into World War II. In fact, Mary Marvel was named after Bender's own daughter, Mary, not Marvel. In an odd twist of fate, after DC won the lawsuit saying that Captain Marvel was too similar to Superman, Bender would make his most recognizable body of work writing Superman. And this meta moment really does symbolize something awesome. It's, it's almost like a closing of a circle, enriched by the fact that the original Captain Marvel artist C.C. Beck drew the story. And speaking of C.C. Beck, if you look this comic up and you put it up against other comics of the time period, you will notice a, a very stark contrast between Beck's cartoony style and the more detail-oriented art of the time, the Neil Adams style. While I like the style, I could see where readers of the time may have been thrown off a bit by it. Because it does feel like a, a little... I guess like a little Abner comic, like a Sunday comic or Blondie or something like that. But that was the direction DC wanted to really come back to the original Captain Marvel as he was somewhat picking up where he left off, but in some odd ways. For example, while Shazam was a DC book, it's not set in the DC universe. It took advantage of the multiverse to keep stories and the characters in their own universe under the guise of being set on Earth S, which allowed the Golden Age stories to be canon. And kind of going into the origin a little bit, both versions feature Billy being accosted by the shadowy stranger who leads Billy, well, he leads him out of the public eye into a train car. And while that's creepy and my stranger danger sense goes off, it's actually thought to be Mercury himself, who is messenger of the gods, who I'm going to talk about in just a moment. And when we do get to the wizard Shazam, he looks like he was drawn off the image of Father Time. Not wholly original, but... It doesn't need to be, since we are kind of dealing with an archetype character. And the Shazam origin has the moment that is a linchpin for me as to why the Jeff Johns and Gary Frank version will never entirely work for me. The wizard tells Billy that he was chosen because he is pure of heart. Pure of heart. And while I won't dismiss that the idea of being pure of heart was probably included as sort of a morality suggestion to, to children, basically saying that if you're good and pure of heart, you may get superpowers. It doesn't mean that this isn't a big, important piece of the puzzle. 
because inherent good in a heroic figure is required to make them a heroic figure. Otherwise, they're an anti-hero. That doesn't mean inherent bravery. It doesn't mean inherent skill. But there must be somewhere an underlying desire to do good. And this was a trait in Billy that I thought the direct-to-DVD short Superman Shazam First Thunder masterfully displayed. Because Billy is selfless despite the fact that so many bad things have happened to him. And the New 52 version of the character seeks to really flaw that up a bit. And downright reverse the idea, to be honest, in the name of uh, realism, I guess. And that, to me, seems to say that it's unrealistic to think that anyone pure of heart exists anymore. And I can't buy into that plot process. Yes, there are bad people in the world. And those people do bad things. And yes, the pure of heart can behave. They can be flawed. They can be imperfect. But if you discount the good then evil automatically wins. After all, this is supposed to be fantasy. But let me jump off that soapbox and get back to the story. Shazam, the magic word this time, and the name of the wizard. It's an acronym for the six mythological heroes who provide Captain Marvel his powers that I mentioned. Let's take a look at those. First up is Solomon, provides wisdom. Solomon was a figure from the Old Testament and the father of David, not me, the one that slew Goliath. But he also has ties to the occult beyond the Bible with stories of Solomon hobnobbing with angels and demons. Uh, Then we have Hercules, who provides strength. He is the Romanized version of the Greek demigod Heracles, who was sent on 12 legendary tasks, possessing superhuman strength thanks to being the son of a human and the god Zeus. Atlas also comes from a Greco-Roman background and is notable for bearing the heavens on his shoulders something that would require an inhuman amount of stamina, which is passed on to Captain Marvel. And Zeus, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the father of Hercules, and the one who punished Atlas and made him bear the heavens, and he provides pure power, fitting since Zeus was the top god in Greek and Roman mythology. And as an interesting side note, when Hercules was completing his twelve labors, he actually encountered Atlas. When trying to pick the apples of Hesperides, which were guarded by the serpent-like Ladon. Hercules convinced Atlas to get the apples for him while he held up the heavens, and when Atlas came back, he tried to leave Hercules permanently in that position, but Hercules tricked Atlas into taking the heavens back, and Atlas had to remain there. So let's mix in some bad blood between that incident with Hercules and having daddy issues as well, and I don't think you have a, a group of mythological figures who would really get along. But that's a tangent. Uh, Back on topic, we have Achilles providing courage. Achilles was a great hero in the Trojan War and the main character of Homer's The Iliad. And Achilles was said to be nigh invulnerable, save for his heel, which would be his downfall. Which is the origin of the term Achilles' heel. And finally, we have Mercury, the messenger of the gods, providing speed and we assume flight. And this list holds true for both origins. So now, coming back to the Wiz origin, since we've done that, which kind of had most of that, omitted a couple of things, as I mentioned, omitted the wizard Shazam coming back in ghostly form, and instead ended with the lightning coming down to the Rock of Eternity. The name for the cave doesn't appear in either version, ironically, but that is the name. And after the introducing Captain Marvel story, it actually continues and splits off a different direction, following Billy getting his powers in the subway. And Billy comes back to his senses in front of the subway again, and wonders if he dreamt the whole thing. And the next morning, Billy is back to work as a newspaper boy, noting a headline about a mad scientist 
threatening the U.S. radio waves and demanding $50 million. Two shady men approach Billy and one buys a paper while the other mentions that he must want to read about the boss. No, not Springsteen. Overhearing this, Billy trails the undesirables to the swanky Sky Tower apartments but can't get in because of a doorman. Instead, Billy rushes to Wiz Radio and barges into the offices of station president Sterling Morris to tell Morris what he found. But Morris brushes Billy off and sarcastically promises to give Billy a job if he can catch the phantom scientist. So Billy gets right to work, getting up to the top floor of an office building that is adjacent to the apartments and calling down the thunder with the magic word, Shazam! Captain Marvel leaps between the buildings and eavesdrops as the crooks from earlier reach somebody on a video screen, the mad scientist himself, Dr. Savannah, who says that since his demands were not met, he will silence the airwaves in minutes. And Captain Marvel bursts into the room and destroys the radio silencing device, rounds up the two crooks, dragging one back up in a shaft in a private elevator. And Captain Marvel introduces himself and Savannah, vows that Cap has not seen the last of him. And then our hero destroys the television communicator device. So Cap says the magic word changes back to Billy Batson, who phones up Sterling Morris. And Morris, seeing that Billy is actually spot on, keeps his word and gives Billy a job as a radio announcer and so ends the first Captain Marvel story. So let's talk a little bit about this one. I mentioned that the first five pages or so were similar, or pretty much the same in condensed form as the retelling of the origin in Shazam number one. The historama was in the original, basically projecting images up on the wall of Billy Batson's life, filling in the detail of his uncle throwing Billy out of the house. Both versions underscore that Billy is pure of heart, and both are valid. The original shows us, and the Shazam origin tells us, which comes down to a preference there. And it is odd to look at the differences in C.C. Beck's style between the two. Because Shazam was a more crisp, it had an animated feel, while Beck's original Captain Marvel, still cartoony, has a bit more proportion nestled in the real world. He isn't super broad or muscle-bound, but he does look like a solidly built dock worker or warehouse worker, somebody who gets their strength from day-to-day activities than from hours at a gym. And... Moving kind of further into the story a bit, Billy comes back to the subway station, which solves the problem of getting out of the Rock of Eternity, and also makes the reader question if all of this really just happened. And back on the subject of color, the dark palette of the backgrounds, mixed with the intricate details, really makes me think of the Fleischer Superman cartoons, and they make the more primary color-clad Billy stand out magnificently. Admittedly, Savannah's plot to silence the radio waves was presented and resolved a bit too quickly, and the superheroics remained on just a few pages of the story, but we get this awesome seed planted. Because Captain Marvel was given a really extensive origin from the time period. And the fact that we got the alter ego before the hero and the main recurring villain in one shot is actually pretty spectacular for the time frame. So now we have looked at the first Captain Marvel story from Fawcett up against the first DC appearance of the character. We've kind of looked at who Captain Marvel is. In just a moment, I'm going to bring you the main event, Captain Marvel versus Superman. I'm going to play a couple promos and then we'll be back to cover that bad boy. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, 
whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. And now, the main event. DC All-New Collector's Edition C-58 Superman vs. Shazam. From February 27, 1978. And the overall story carries the title of When Worlds Collide. Written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Rich Buckler inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and colored by Adrian Roy. And the front cover features Superman and Captain Marvel wailing away at each other in space as two Earths move closer to one another in the background, and Mary Marvel and Supergirl both rush to break up the fight. The back cover shows the villain, Carmang, watching the fight on a view screen, telling the heroes to keep fighting so they can't stop him from smashing both of their Earths. The inner front cover has a primer on both heroes, which is awesome because anybody on the street could pick the book up and have enough information to jump right in. Now, the story is split into chapters with interludes, and I'll be stopping with each segment to drop my notes on you, beginning with the prologue. And this issue begins with a prologue on Mars, where the formerly good scientist Carmang has become the evil wizard Carmang, and he summons Black Adam from Earth-S and Quarmar, the sand superman from Earth-1. Carmang overpowers the duo of villains and makes them his minions and explains that he wants them to put devices on both Earth-1 and Earth-S to make the planets magnetically attract to each other and make them collide. And that ends the prologue, so let me stop here and share a bit. Um, One, as an overall note, the Treasury Editions give the book an IMAX feeling. Splash pages like the ones on pages 2 and 3 really just pop in a big epic way which doesn't take much in this format. Um, This was not only Carmang's first appearance, it is his only appearance in DC lore, which is actually maybe a bit of a shame, 
Because as we're going to learn, he's got an interesting backstory that really helps drive the book. And on top of the big bad, we get two formidable uh, enemies of our titular heroes, Black Adam and the Sandman Superman. Um, Black Adam is oddly perceived as Captain Marvel's main nemesis, but in all reality, this was only his third appearance. And I don't mean his third appearance since DC started doing Shazam book. I mean his third appearance ever. Because Black Adam first appeared in Marvel Family number 1 from 1945 and was the original champion of Shazam in ancient Egypt until the power went to his head and he became a tyrant. So the wizard Shazam imprisoned Black Adam in a star millions and millions of miles from Earth and he eventually found his way back and began to mop the floor with the Marvels until he was tricked into saying Shazam and reverted to dust since he is thousands of years old and he was not seen again until Shazam number 28 in 1977. And for as major a player as Black Adam would become in the post-crisis era, he would only make a total of nine pre-crisis appearances, including Crisis on Infinite Earths itself. Now, Sandman Superman or Quarmar made his first appearance in Superman issue 233, the issue that ushered in the Bronze Age. An experiment that changed all of Earth's kryptonite into harmless metal also transferred a portion of Superman's powers to a sand being from the dimension Quarm and made Superman a little bit weaker. Eventually, Quarmar would return to his dimension after seeing the catastrophic effects of he and Superman fighting. I'm not going to go much further than that with Sandman Superman because Charlie Niemeyer covered these issues on his excellent podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, so I refer you there. And in this prologue, Sandman Superman seems to be the smarter of the two villains because he sees Carmang overpower Black Adam and immediately shuts his mouth and puts himself into check, which I think is a smart move. But this scene really serves to set up Carmang as a plausible threat to two ultra-powerful heroes. And speaking of powerful beings, let's jump back into the story with Chapter 1, Superman. And just a reminder, we are in the Bronze Age, which means Lois and Clark are working for as, as reporters and, and an anchor for WGBS News, which is a signature of this era. His boss was the obnoxious Morgan Edge, though Perry White would appear quite a bit, and the Bronze Age also introduced heel Steve Lombard, who was a constant thorn in Clark's side. Lombard would bully Clark at least once per issue per editorial mandate. Now, WGBS reporters Lois Lane and Steve Lombard are covering a baseball game at Metropolis Stadium where a new villain, who isn't named in a yellow saucer, attacks. And the villain is stunned to see Superman show up, which he hadn't planned for, and attempts to escape via a missile, but Superman smacks him down. Back at the WGBS building, Steve is stunned to find that the tape he took of Superman is no longer in the camera. Luckily, Clark Kent arrives with the footage. And later, as Clark is anchoring the evening news, the WGBS building begins to rumble. So Clark slips out and investigates as Superman. And the Man of Steel discovers that the rumbling is a result of Captain Marvel, who he met on a cross-multiverse adventure with the Justice League. And Captain Marvel is punching the walls. So Cap and Superman begin a light tussle, and realizing that he has a formidable foe on his hand, Superman uses, wait for it, super ventriloquism to summon Supergirl, who rushes to her cousin's aid. And back at the fight, Captain Marvel is temporarily knocked down, and when Superman goes to check on him, Cap rises up and blasts Superman with a device that shoots red sun radiation. With Superman down, Captain Marvel flies away and reveals himself to be Black Adam. 
and Supergirl finally gets to the scene as soon as her cousin stands up, and he vows that Captain Marvel will pay. Flying off, Superman states that he will kill Captain Marvel and leaves Supergirl in fear. So that is the end of that chapter. Looking at this chapter, beginning with page 6 of the book, we are at Metropolis Stadium for a Metro's game, and a generic villain with a flying saucer is pulling a wall down, apparently on the one side of the stadium where nobody was setting. Uh, a little off there, but it's another supersized splash page, and once again, comic books in IMAX style. And the scene definitely dates the book, because Lois points out that Steve has a mini-cam, but the camera is huge. I mean, it's apparently a Betamax camera that was... It, that thing had to weigh about as much as a Buick. Uh, but as far as the nameless villain, also a product of the time, because his costume is orange and green. Wonderful colors to put together. He also says that he didn't prepare for Superman when he attacked Metropolis. Let me get that again. He didn't prepare for Superman when attacking Metropolis. The dude even talks about Batman in Gotham, Flash in Central City, and Hawkman in Midway City. So he gets the superhero jurisdiction idea, but decides to attack a stadium. This villain is so dumb that it isn't a surprise that we never ever see him again. And we get the oblig ob obligatory awesome. He get we get the obligatory Steve Lombard moment on page nine. So that's out of the way. And we find out that Superman must have been reading some Spider-Man comics because he steals Peter Parker's shtick by filming his own heroics. And we get our faux Captain Marvel on page 12, and my knee-jerk reaction was to wonder why we didn't get a full splash. But fret not, because the splash is used to excellent effect later in the book. So now on to page 12, we actually see a more C.C. Beck-style Captain Marvel than we will see in the rest of the book. Because Buckler ditches the ultra-cartoony style Captain Marvel that we saw in Shazam number 1, and the Big Red Cheese looks a bit more in line with Superman's style for the time. And then we get some expositional dialogue on page 13, when Lois and Morgan Edge fill the reader in on the fact that Captain Marvel comes from an alternate Earth, and Superman met him on a mission with the Justice League. Info they probably shouldn't know, but all the way through the book, they're kind of that exposition. And to quote Wayne's World, it all seemed so extraneous at the time. And in another move that dates the book, Supergirl in her Degrassi High 70s sweater and Ascot-style cape. My least favorite version of the Supergirl costume, because I guess, I guess they thought it's the 70s. Let's throw her into something frumpy. That's the only thing I can imagine. And I do want to point something out. On page 15, Superman says that Captain Marvel has the mind of a boy in the body of a mighty man. Not true, because during this era, Captain Marvel and Billy were actually two separate beings. Um, they kind of shared a space, they kind of switched spots, so to speak, but they were essentially two separate beings, and they, and they seemed aware of what the other had been doing, but Cap and Billy weren't the same person. That was something that wouldn't be included until the post-crisis. And as this chapter ends with a bit of an alarming scene... I'm really left a little disturbed because it's Superman getting extremely angry and threatening to kill Captain Marvel. It, it, it bothers me, actually. Because Superman is supposed to be good. He's supposed to be above vengeance and petty anger. And yet, here he is flying after Captain Marvel like a bat out of hell. And with the end of that chapter comes an interlude called Castle Carmang. Almost all of them are, all the interludes are called Castle Carmang. 
where we cut back to Mars, where Carmang is observing the events of the previous chapter and confirms that Black Adam placed the device that will spell curtains for Earth-1. The device, Carmang muses, will create enough energy to save his entire race. And as if on cue, Carmang finds himself haunted by the ghostly spirits of his fellow Martians, which triggers a flashback to Carmang's early days. I wish I had a flashback sound effect. Anyway, we see Carmang belongs to an ancient Martian civilization which predates the one that John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, belonged to. Carmang was a scientist who became a sorcerer who sought to live forever, all Voldemort style, and built a device to grant him that power. But when he fired up the device, it killed everyone but Carmang. Which, I'm sorry, I shouldn't crack up at that, but it's just, you know, normally in real life when you try to, you know, you screw up the brakes on a bike, you know, you might get skinned knees. Um, but you don't kill everybody but yourself. Anyway, sorry, his fellow Martians still appeared in ghost form, or ghost-like form, haunting him and throwing a lot of hate his way. And in the present, Carmang begs for them to leave him alone, and that was the first interlude. I'm really growing to dig Carmang a lot, despite his sort of off-putting eyeball earrings that nobody else in this ancient civilization wore. He's kind of pulling a Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now. The horror which is actually pretty fitting. Um, He's actually a pretty good villain, with a lot of pathos, very Doctor Doom-like in his motivations, uh, because he's responsible for the deaths or phantomization of his entire civilization, and they won't let him forget it. And he seems to wield some awesome power. And it's a shame that we never hear from him again, spoiler. But uh, let's move on to the next chapter, shall we? Let's get closer to the main thing. In Chapter 2, Shazam! We open on Earth-S where Captain Marvel has rushed to the Brooklyn Bridge as it is crumbling and starting to fall into the water below, after being hit with a mysterious pink beam. Mary Batson, Billy's twin sister, is on the bridge and says the magic word Shazam and becomes Mary Marvel to help her brother. Between the two of them, they use cars to patch up the section of the bridge that has been broken off, saving all the people on the structure. Instead of investigating the beam's source, Captain Marvel turns into Billy Batson to meet his girlfriend, And while on a date with her, he catches sight of Superman and goes to investigate as Captain Marvel. Unknown to Billy, he saw the Sandman Superman who hides from Cap, so he can carry out Carmang's orders to plant the device. But as soon as that is done, he sucker punches the big red cheese and the two fight, and Captain Marvel realizes that their battle is endangering the crowd below. So he goes about changing his focus to rescuing people, and while he is distracted, the Sandman Superman hits him with a blinding peak beam and rushes off. I think we figured out what happened to the bridge now, don't you? And like Superman, Captain Marvel is enraged and rushes off after Superman, vowing revenge and leaving the late-arrival Mary Marvel standing in shock like her Earth-1 counterpart, Supergirl. So, looking at this chapter, we begin with the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. Where's Fawcett City? And admittedly, I'm going to be honest with you, maybe I missed a story somewhere during this this time period, because this is getting towards the end, and they were trying to incorporate Captain Marvel a bit more into the modern sensibility. But we get another hero in action scene to open, which has a nice bit of text explaining what Captain Marvel is doing. Just as a dentist repairs cavities with metal fillings, Captain Marvel acts quickly to fill the cracked bridge structure with solid steel. Sorry, I'm no Ted Knight, but I can actually buy that. 
stuffing cars in the fissure makes sense, even though it it doesn't make sense in a real world way. I can buy it within the context of the comic because of that explanation. Otherwise, I would have rolled my R's. Eyes. I do roll my R's sometimes. Arr. Anyway, Mary Marvel enters the fray on page 24. And Mary made her first appearance, as I mentioned, in Captain Marvel Adventures number 18. She is the twin sister of Billy, and they were actually separated as infants by a nurse named Sarah Prim, who contacted Billy on her deathbed to tell him that she had replaced an affluent couple's dead baby with Mary which is more than a little creepy. That's a lot creepy, actually. But anyway, she gave Billy the clues to find Mary, who was going by the name Mary Bromfield. And lo and behold, because she is Billy's sister, she can call down the lightning and become Mary Marvel. Now, for Mary, the acronym Shazam stands for different figures than Billy, because hers stands for Galena. Galena, awesome. Hers stands for Selena, who gives her grace. Hippolyta, for great strength. Adrienne, or Adrian. Ariande? I don't know this person. Anyway, Ariane, who imparts skill. Zephyrus, who gives her fleetness. Aurora, who grants beauty. And Minerva, for bestowing wisdom. Wait, wait, wait. Beauty? Beauty is a superpower? What is this? Rising stars? Beauty's not a superpower. I can't use beauty to fight a villain. I don't know. But I, I was really psyched when Mary came into the picture in this book because I like the addition of Supergirl to the story. This makes a family affair, and that excites me. And right after the bridge rescue, Billy Batson goes on a date. But as I kind of alluded to in the synopsis, wasn't there the little matter of the beam that caused the bridge to collapse in the first place? Shouldn't the wisdom of Solomon have indicated that Captain Marvel investigate the source of the beam since that was where the real danger was. But instead, we get a fairly symmetrical fight, is the Superman chapter, and both of these serve to get our heroes flying towards each other with fists flying, of course, which is really what the audience and I, and you probably, want from the book. But before that can happen, we get another interlude. And this interlude serves as pretty much strictly exposition with Carmine explaining to the ghostly forms of his fellow Martians that he is setting up the destruction of Earths 1 and S to create a specific energy to free his civilization from their ghost forms. And his goal is to pit Superman against Captain Marvel, keeping them, from dis keeping them distracted from the catastrophic effects of his machines until it's too late. And if they do tamper with either device, the planet's magnetic field will go awry, and they are up the creek anyway. And as he monologues to himself or the ghosts, Carming watches as Captain Marvel and Mary Marvel arrive on Earth-1, where the angry Superman spots them, and that opens to the main event. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Chapter 3, Superman vs. Captain Marvel. Superman and Captain Marvel finally meet up, both ready to go throw down, both angry, and throw down they do. They clash with Superman striking the first blow, causing Rubble to fall down, almost hitting Slowest Lane and Steve Lombard, or Lowest Lane and Steve Lombard, not Slowest, but let's put that together, let's put that in the lexicon, Slowest. Anyway, Lois asks, asks Steve if he can fly the WGBS helicopter, and reluctantly, Steve admits that he can't. 
Back up above, Cap strikes back with some of the rubble, and Superman counters with some super breath. And as the heroes battle, Mary is accosted by Supergirl, and they actually compare notes. They don't fight, they just put together that Black Adam and Sand Superman were responsible. So they plot to track down the villains, with Mary going after Sand Superman, and Supergirl tracking down Black Adam. Meanwhile, the Battle of the Titanic Heroes has made its way to Niagara Falls, with Lois and Steve trailing in the WGBS copter, and the fight knocks out the Niagara Falls power station, plunging the East Coast into a massive blackout, and the chapter ends with the fisticuffs still flying after over an hour. So starting this chapter with pages 36 and 37, oh wow, what an awesome splash. This is truly, truly an IMAX experience in comic book form. Because it's an image filled with epic epicness. The fight is about to happen, and it will be on a scale never before seen. And as an interesting aside note, we have staples in the middle of the page. Why is that relevant? That means the actual conflict between Superman and Captain Marvel, they actually coming together, their actual fight does not occur until literally the middle of the book. Um... I guess it's not that relevant now that I think about it, but there it is. I'm a big fan of the framing of pages 38 and 39. The superhero stuff is huge and takes up the bulk of the page, while the smaller panels with Steve Lombard and Lois Lane really serve as exposition without really interfering in the battle itself. And we get punched in the face with a fantastic Superman image on page 40. It's a shot of Superman deflecting the blows, and it is suitable for framing, ladies and gentlemen. And we get an upskirt shot of Mary Marvel in the first panel of page 41, which, 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 hear me out, I point out not to be a creepy old man, but more because a couple of years ago, there was an uproar on the interwebs about Supergirl wearing a cheerleader style skirt, which is a skirt with shorts combo type thing. And I'm sorry, it was done here first. And with no internets to give voices to the fan, it hasn't been mentioned since. And I also want to point out the sound effect on panel 3 as Captain Marvel hits Superman. Bloom! How loud would these punches be? Now, I mean, think about it. With the Doomsday fight, their blows shattered windows. With the sound, here with the foresight of a great writer, they aren't in the city. Which allows these two titans to really duke it out and put their all into it. And can you imagine the concussive force from these punches? I mean, I imagine it'd be like getting blasted in the face with a hurricane force wind. But I digress a little. On pages 42 and 43, we get the origins of both the Sand Superman and Black Adam, which is a highlight because that would make this, once again, this Treasury Edition is self-contained. You get all the necessary information in one package. And also a big plus to this tale is that while Superman and Captain Marvel fight, as per the title, Superman versus Shazam, their female counterparts get a role to play, other than glorified cheerleaders. And actually a big, big role, as we're going to see in just a moment. And before we go into that, and uh, that, let's look at pages 44 and 45, which returns to the widescreen action with the smaller panels to prove, provide exposition. We get Niagara Falls, and rendered in a glorious fashion. It makes me think of Superman 2, but that movie wasn't made at this point. And... The chapter wraps up with a couple we don't know, giving us sort of the man-on-the-street point of view of what's happening, and like many of us would be in the real world, they're rightfully scared out of their gourd at what's happening here. 
I would be scared. I mean, look, think about the havoc this fight could bring. And while the fight wages on, we come to another interlude, where Carmine watches the fight from his castle on Mars, while Supergirl scours the Earth. Uh, Earth 1, to be specific. Uh, she's scouring Egypt for Black Adam, finding him in a pyramid, capturing a mystic weapon known as the Ibis Stick. I got the Ibis Stick. If I can hit once, I can hit twice. Uh, not that one. But he uses the Ibis st- Stick to literally smack Supergirl. Meanwhile, Mary Marvel heads to Earth-S, where she comes across the glowing sand, indicating Quarmar is near, and sure enough, he rises up to confront her. We flash back to the fight with Supergirl and Black Adam, where Supergirl uses her super lungs to get the Ibis Stick out of Black Adam's hands, and then uses the stick to transform Black Adam into a mere mortal by calling upon lightning, mystic lightning. And this causes him to cower, since she's now much, much more powerful than he and simultaneously, Mary Marvel's fight with Saiyan Superman comes to an end before it begins. Because Quarmar is not looking for a fight, he's accepted the destruction of the Earths and chose to remain on Earth-S and greet his own doom. But he spills all of the details of Karmang's plan to Mary, and bringing the chapter to a close, my notes on the interlude are somewhat brief. We learn that Karmang uh, apparently gets off on the conflicts he's watching because he gets all excited over evil, um, the Ibis Stick. It belonged to a character called Ibis the Invincible that I mentioned way back at the beginning of the episode. Now, I said Spy Smasher was important. That's not correct. Ibis here is kind of relevant. Because he did debut alongside Captain Marvel in Wiz Comics number 2. And was co-created by Bill Parker, who also created Captain Marvel. Now, Ibis, the concept was he was an ancient Egyptian prince, given the Ibis Stick, which held unlimited power. And the prince placed himself into suspended animation coming to the modern world by reviving. And when he revived, he became a crime fighter. And the reason Black Adam visits the Egypt of Earth-1 is truly logical. Because on this Earth, Ibis didn't revive. So that leaves that powerful weapon in, in his tomb just available for the taking. Which is awesome. And when Jerry Ordway did this power in his Power Shazam series in the 90s, was right after DC brought the Shazam universe outright. He actually brought Ibis into the story along with most of the core Fawcett characters. This was a good way to reference the unseen Earth-S continuity without paying an additional licensing fee at the time. So, well done, logistically and story-wise. And finally, on page 51, I have one beef. When Black Adam normally changed back to his human form, he would revert to dust thanks to his age. But here, he simply becomes human. I think Adam changing into Cremains was central to his defeat in previous appearances. But this actually sets up some potential returns for the character that, well, never really happened, but could have. I don't know. My one beef with the whole book. That's my biggest beef, I should say. But let's get back to the fight with Chapter 4, Superman vs. Captain Marvel, Round 2. And the battle is raging on, and now rages over the Grand Canyon where the military is sending fighter jets. And the jets fire on Superman and Captain Marvel, which does all of nothing, of course. And as Superman and Cap tear the jets up, the devices placed on either Earth begin to blink, signaling that the end is about to go down. In space, above Earth-1, Supergirl and Mary Marvel are on their way to Mars to face Carming, when Supergirl asks Mary if she can get the wizard to prolong the battle. So Mary flies to the Rock of Eternity, where the wizard is waiting for her, and then comes back to tell Supergirl that he will cooperate. 
and the heroines continue to Castle Carmang, while we, the readers, head back to Earth where the battle ends up in an oil field in Texas. During a very brief lull in the fight, the wizard Shazam appears to Captain Marvel and tells Cap to keep the fight going. And while Captain Marvel is distracted, Superman knocks the holy moly out of Captain Marvel and the chapter ends. So now jumping back through the notes, pages 52 and 53 have another huge splash of Superman and Cap fighting over the Grand Canyon, but I can't make out exactly what is going on in the background. Because most of the image on page 52 shows the Grand Canyon just splayed out, while the page 53 is a pure blue background. So the angles are all off because the butte beneath Superman doesn't have a proper angular perspective, and the jets were basically shooting down towards the ground. I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's the weakest of the splashes. And I spent a long, long time trying to figure out just what the heck was happening. The skyline's all messed up. On page 54, um, my least favorite line of the book... My least? What? No, I'm sorry. On page 54 is my favorite line of the book. The jets are firing at Superman, and he simply says, This is Superman you're attacking. It reflects the pilot's thoughts from the top panel of the page, who thinks to himself that Superman shrugs off bullets. So the commanding officers say to fire the guns and missiles at Superman, and the Man of Steel is basically saying, Really? Do you know who I am? The lesson? Sometimes people in power can be dumb. But no worries, the pilots eject G.I. Joe style on page 55, and he thinks out loud, I knew this would happen, but orders are orders. Wah, wah, wah. On page 56, a subplot that I haven't touched on rears its awkward head. The fact that Mary Marvel is developing the hots for Superman. Yes, she's underage. But as she says, he's just so gorgeous. Those, those are her words, not mine. But Superman is a good-looking guy. Let's, let's not forget that. And he has all those muscles. Um, but between pages 55 and 56, there are three shots that highlight Supergirl's butt. It's awkward, but she's also underage. And then we're in Texas, or what I assume is Texas, with all the cliches like the cowboy hats and the exclamation, What in the name of Sam Houston? But the cool note I really want to show you is on the lower left-hand panel on page 58 where Captain Marvel considers the tactic of getting close to Superman, calling down the lightning, and then jumping out of the way at super speed. This is actually something we would see Cap use in, in Kingdom Come, and it proved to be highly effective there. So well thought out, Captain Marvel. But in this case, we don't get that payoff because the wizard appears and tells Captain Marvel to keep the fight going but doesn't bother to give Cap a heads up that Superman is coming. So now Captain Marvel is getting pummeled. So I'd like to thank you for nothing, all-seeing, all-knowing wizard. And now it's time for the final gambit, which happens in an interlude. Wait, an interlude? Let's call the interlude what it is. It all hits the fan because Supergirl and Mary Marvel reach Castle Carmang and crash in on him and Carmang quickly overcomes Supergirl because of her vulnerability to magic but Mary Marvel has no such vulnerability and intercepts a fireball and throws it right back at Carmang and back in the fight Superman just busts the living crap out of Captain Marvel knocking him across the Texas sands where Cap lies still and lifeless. Superman snaps to his senses realizing that he just killed Earth's mightiest mortal. And the wizard Shazam appears and tells Superman that he's not a murderer and fills the Man of Steel in on what Carmang is up to. 
Superman revives Captain Marvel and they fly to take out Carmang's machines. And speaking of Carmang, he has a decisive lead over Mary and Supergirl while Lombard and Lois return to WGBS and just in time to see the now friendly Superman and Captain Marvel flying overhead. Superman and Cap look at the machine trying to figure out how to disarm it without throwing the planet into turmoil. When Superman decides that he can circle the Earth at super speed and keep the Earth's magnetic pull in check, while Captain Marvel disarms the device. So, Superman crisscrosses around the Earth, all Superman the movie style, as Cap smashes the device, and simultaneously Supergirl is able to break from the fight with Carmang long enough to hit the black button that will pull them all into limbo with the rest of Carmang's people. And Supergirl grabs Mary and flies out of the castle Carmang as it all gets sucked into limbo, and the day is saved. Let me start by saying... Of all the segments in this book, this one has the most action all the way around. So much happens, and really rapidly. I love Supergirl and Mary Marvel teaming up. And surprising Carmang on this page 60, and the use of Supergirl's vulnerability to magic versus Mary's magic-based powers on page 61. And page 62 is yet another fantastic splash, with Superman just walloping Captain Marvel, which leads to my note on page 63... The event that snaps Superman back to himself is the moment that he thinks he has killed Captain Marvel. This is as it should be, because killing is something that should absolutely galvanize Superman, just like it did when he killed the Kryptonian trio in the post-crisis era. It's almost like, I guess it's like the old adage that it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye, except here it's all punching until it comes to the irrevocable event of death. Because bruises and broken bones can heal, but there's no coming back from being dead. Well, I guess this is comics, but anyway, it doesn't take away from my point. Um, Here is my biggest gripe of the book. Wait, didn't I say that about the Black Adam thing? I was wrong. This is the biggest one. The Wizard Shazam. Shazam. Awesome. I want that guy. The Wizard Shazam shows up on page 64. This all-seeing, all-knowing wizard. And tells Superman what's actually going on. So, Shazam has seen and known what is going on all along. You don't think that he could have just bothered to step in at one point and give a heads up. It's not like he had to do anything on the physical level and being a ghost and all, but a simple, hey, Superman, something jacked up is happening. I mean, I guess we wouldn't get a very good special if it ended before it started, but, you know, it is what it is. Oh, and on the same page, Superman revives Captain Marvel with a blast of heat vision to the face. Awesome. So Superman went from mourning the guy to blasting the unconscious Captain Marvel with heat vision. What uh, would a simple shake not have done? But let's get to the the moment of team up. Uh, Before pages 68 and 69 where Superman has one last epic moment circling the earth with text boxes talking about his nobility and his courage while Captain Marvel smashes a machine with no text boxes. It's a bit lopsided. But let's be honest, Superman is, after all, Superman, and everything about his nobility and courage is true. And then the climax. Carmang still has a button to open the doorway to Limbo. Let me say that again. Carmang still has that button out in the open that opens the doorway to Limbo. It's a bit convenient, and Supergirl gets a bit more of the spotlight here, but everything really does feel like we reach an epic climax with this chapter. And you definitely feel your pulse quickening as it just moves at a rapid pace, coming to a head and hitting you in the face all at once. And just when you think the book is over, we still have the little business 
of an epilogue, where Mary Marvel throws herself at Superman, which really gets Supergirl's goat, so she pretends to do the same with Captain Marvel. And Mary tries to remind Supergirl that her brother is just a boy, which in turn reminds her that she's jailbait herself. And all four walk into the sunset, as Karmang is left to suffer for all eternity in limbo, constantly tortured by the people that he trapped there. The end. I had no specific notes for the epilogue. Karmang gets justice, but where did Black Adam end up? Maybe he's out there now on Earth-S, and I just realized that the magic lightning wouldn't work on the same way on Earth-1 as it does on the Earth-S. Or maybe not, at least. So I imagine that a powerless Black Adam now has to get a job as a met- at a Metropolis deli, serving Reuben sandwiches and hot soup to the masses. Justice is served. Um, one final bit on the book. The inside back cover is a lengthy text piece about the legal battle between Superman and Captain Marvel by E. Nelson Bridwell that I honestly had no desire to read, but it's there. So let's bring this in for a landing. Ever since his conception, Captain Marvel was put against Superman, and now we finally saw an out-and-out comic showing us how a fight would go. I do wish we'd seen a bit more of Captain Marvel's supporting cast and cameos, like we saw Lois and Lombard and Morgan Edge. And it would have been nice to see Wiz Radio, Sterling Morris, or Uncle Dudley, not to mention the completely overlooked Captain Marvel Jr., who admittedly doesn't have a counterpart unless you count Crypto. Well, could have, they could have thrown Crypto in there. But I guess that would have made the book very crowded, and the fight proper does take place exclusively on Earth-1, with Mary and Supergirl kind of going back and forth, and this makes sense. Being as which the DC Universe was on Earth-1, and this is a DC book, I see what they did there. But I'm not clear on why we got New York on Earth-S and not Fawcett City. That was a bit of a disappointment, and maybe I should go back and read some more of those 70s Shazam books. Um... But really, I mean, when you think about this episode, we've looked at Captain Marvel, looked at the first recognized mono a mono fight between he and Superman, and it would be the last. It would not be the last. What am I saying? <laughs> they fought all kinds of times. I'm going to recommend Superman Shazam First Thunder, the entire Power of Shazam series, and the originating graphic novel itself, and of course, the direct-to-DVD Superman Shazam The Return of Black Adam. And speaking of that... I have recorded an additional commentary for that short, which you can find exclusively in the show notes at www.supermanforever.com. To be honest with you, it turned out to move a bit quicker than I expected when recording, so most of my points kind of get muddled, but it's a fun extra to throw in for this episode. And I really want to return to Superman and Captain Marvel at some point. Uh, This time around, we've covered quite a bit. I'm looking at the time. We've we've been going for a while, and we still have one more thing to cover. That's an episode of Superman the Animated Series. We'll be looking at the Promethean right after this final promo break. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. What man will wear spandex?
Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's gonna be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. We are back to cover the third episode of Superman the Animated Series, second season. And at this point, the show really went beyond Saturday morning and began airing as the new Superman Batman Adventures, which began with the first episode of the season. I completely missed it with my notes since I did the first two episodes back to back. Uh, But this episode is entitled The Promethean and originally aired on September 12th, 1997. It was written by Stan Berkowitz and Alan Burnett and directed by Nubo Tamazawa. It's as close as I'm getting to being correct on that name, so I apologize. On top of our normal cast of Tim Daly and Dana Delaney and so on, we also get the return of Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton and Charles Napier as General Hardcastle and Frank Welker as The Creature. The episode opens with a space shuttle flying through space as we get a voiceover that its mission is straight out of Armageddon to destroy an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. On board is General Hardcastle and Emile Hamilton, who asks Hamilton if he still thinks that Superman is necessary. Superman arrives in his spacesuit and heads to the asteroid to plant explosives, but he discovers a giant, unconscious, rock-like creature bound to the rock. And Hamilton begins to study the creature, discovering that it is alive, and is transmitting a binary code. But the problem it presents is the asteroid can't be destroyed as long as that living creature is attached, a problem that Hardcastle doesn't see. He's there to destroy the asteroid, plain and simple. So Superman suggests putting the asteroid into Earth's orbit and pushes it into position, bringing the creature to life in the sunlight. Seeing the danger, Hardcastle ignites the charges, destroying the asteroid and creating enough force to push the creature to Earth. Superman is able to save the shuttle from a piece of meteor debris and realizes that the creature is heading right for Metropolis as we fade to a commercial break. And we fade back up, with Superman attempting to divert the falling creature to the ocean. And Superman grabs onto the giant, holding on as they begin re-entry, and Superman's spacesuit melts off. Succumbing to the intense heat and speed, Superman loses his grip, and the creature falls into the ocean, near a passing ship, creating a boom so great that they feel it at the Daily Planet and a tidal wave that begins to put the nearby ship I mentioned into danger. Luckily, Superman is able to guide the ship through the waves to safety. Beneath the water's surface, the creature begins to walk towards Metropolis. Wearing a protective diving suit, Superman scours the bottom of the sea for the creature while Hamilton tries to decipher the binary code. A submarine runs into the creature who begins to crush it in his arms, but with a touch of the creature, it absorbs all of the nuclear energy from the submarine just as Superman arrives and pushes the sub out of the creature's grasp. Superman gets a message from Hamilton calling him back to Star Labs because he cracked the code. 
Back at Star Labs, Hamilton explains that the creature is an artificial being created for a, uh, created by aliens for manual labor. He's designed to absorb heat, but he got too hungry and began to absorb all of the heat in sight. And just as Hamilton and Superman are forming a plan to use the cold to subdue the creature, they get word. The creature has reached the shorelines of Metropolis. When we come back from commercial break, the military is firing everything they have at the creature under the command of General Hardcastle, and Superman arrives on the scene to explain that the creature is absorbing the heat of the missiles and the bullets. Hello? And Hardcastle shrugs the warning off and fires a superheated missile, way to go dude, which the monster, what, what, absorbs, yes, of course. And the creature continues ashore, not even phased by the tank fire that hits it. In fact, it nearly crushes a tank before Superman pushes the vehicle out of the way and then catches a helicopter. The creature destroys just before it hits Hardcastle, who, seeing this, gives the order to cease fire. Superman asks Hamilton to work on something for him and says that he will get the creature to the reservoir. The rest of us are kind of left in the dark on that one for a moment, but it will become clear. Uh, Superman catches up with the monster at a smelting factory and gets its attention. And the two fight briefly, with Superman falling underfoot for a moment, and then flying away so that the monster chases him. Then every light source in Metropolis is extinguished, confusing the creature, who walks aimlessly through the dark city until Superman uses, uses his heat vision to make a steel eye beam super hot and glowing. So he guides the creature to a nearby reservoir, where the monster begins to enter the water, but momentarily gets distracted by the moon before Superman uses the girder trick again. This time, the monster grabs Superman in its giant palm, so he blows up some nearby gas tanks, and the monster enters the water, which is filled with freezing gel, like the substance used on ice packs. And the reservoir is frozen, and the creature with it, but Superman still has to free himself from the grip, and he does so just in time, and the creature is the danger is averted, and the episode ends with a shot of the monster's frozen hand, still reaching for the moon. So... We start off with a great uh, entrance for Superman with uh, Hardcastle asking Hamilton, you know, is he still necessary? Because he's late, you know, and he shows up. And he says, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, earth Earthquake in Albania. Great line. It's it, great sound effects in this episode. Because um, Hardcastle is a really great template for what we would see with General Lane. But why does the first shot of the creature look like it's chained to the space dock from Star Trek the movie or Star Trek 2? At least this is just my thought on it. Um, holy crap, the shot of the sun hitting the creature is awesome. This is superb animation. And the sound scheme in space is a bit ahead of its time, as I was getting ready to talk about. It's it's generally silent, but loses points because there are still sound effects. Uh, Superman plants a bomb in silence, but its mechanisms make whirring noises. Um, still a few years towards until Firefly would actually perfect that no sound in space scheme. But as we scan into the Earth's atmosphere, it's flawless. It's very much reminds me of using Google Earth nearly a decade before Google Earth existed. And the effect of Superman's spacesuit melting could not have come off better. It's a bit terrifying and reminds me of something out of a Ridley Scott alien movie. And the color scheme here is excellent as well, uh, just all the way across the episode. And it took a moment to figure out that what Superman is actually doing is keeping the ship at an angle to prevent it from capsizing when he goes in to rescue it. Because he just kind of sits underneath it when the tidal wave hits that ship. But very, very well done. Very logical. 
And then, uh, speaking of going into the water, we have Deep Dive Superman, who I believe was an actual action figure based on the scuba suit we see here. Um, the animated series at least gave Kenner actual cause to create variant versions of Superman. I will give them credit for that. But we get a great underwater moment as Superman rescues the sub in the very quiet, very slow action scene, which normally are two things that traditionally don't make for great action scenes, but they, they do work great here. And one of my favorite shots of the episode is when the creature starts from Metropolis at night. Man, that is some great background work. Very Fleischer-like. And you know what else? The music for the episode was exceptional. Especially when Superman guides the monster with the light of a melted eye beam. It was very playful and filled with a bit of whimsy. And the creatures... Speaking of the creature, his size and weight is displayed well in the animation. And the animation really does benefit from the dark theme. And I mentioned up front that Frank Welker is the voice of the creature, which he was pretty much the voice of your favorite cartoon from the 80s, no matter what that cartoon was. And he provided a great growl for this creature. And then we have Charles Napier as General Hardcastle, who is just perfectly cast. Charles Napier was an excellent actor and has ties to the Hulk. And the title is really good, actually. It's an allegory to Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods, and also by, by proxy to Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's novel was actually subtitled The Modern Prometheus, and we are dealing with an artificial life form. And even the end smacks of Shelley's Frankenstein because that concluded with the frozen sea as well. And that shot of the frozen hand is just gorgeous. I mean, sure, I have a few questions left. What do they do with the creature? Not sure. I, we never find out. But overall... Final thoughts on the episode grade A. It's just good action. The animation and sound is superb. I have very little to gripe about. So five S shields out of five. Which brings us to the end of another episode of Superman Forever Radio. I am J. David Weeder, and I want to thank you for joining me. And until next time, keep on fighting for truth and justice forever. Just don't forget your magic word. Shazam. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com the show is also on Tumblr at supermanforeverradio.tumblr.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners, and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.